6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler continues his session entitled, The Hebrew Epistles. Another order would occur that Dave predict, David predicted in Psalm 110, another order which is non-Levitical. He's pointing out that Melchizedek is a higher order than Levi. The Le Levitical priesthood that the Jews are committed to was temporary. It was weak. It could not impart strength to fulfill its demands, and it could not bring perfection. It could offer remedies for having failed the law, but it couldn't give you the power to overcome, to keep the law. So we've got a better covenant. The Mosaic covenant was destined to be replaced by a superior one, according to Jeremiah 31. And the new covenant has better promises, better priesthood, better sanctuary, better sacrifice. Now, that's really, we really have the old covenant, called, what we call the Old Testament. The word testament and covenant is a little misleading, because we think of testament differently, but it's like old covenant, new covenant. The new testament is really the new covenant, if you will. A better sanctuary. See, the limitation of the old sanctuary, which was restricted and representative copy, was contrasted with the heavy the actual. He points out it was just a model that was given to Moses as a temporary uh, thing. Only one man out of one tribe, out of one nation and one race could enter, and only on one day in the year and not without blood. So the access there was a very, very restrictive one. Okay? It was temporary. It was limited. It was inadequate. And the mosaic was inadequate, required repetition. Animal blood. Sins were covered, not removed. That was a, was a temporary measure pointing to Calvary. Only obedience brings perfection, according to Psalm 40. And only the Messiah can impart the perfection. Mosaic sacrifices were never intended to be permanent. So there's a lot of contrasts here between the Levitical priests and the Messiah. Levitical had many priests, the Messiah has one. Levitical priests were always standing, there were no chairs inside the tabernacle. The Messiah is sitting, he's finished. The Levitical priests ministered daily, the Messiah administered on one specific day. Levitical priests had to repeat it all, Christ did it once and for all, to telestai, it is finished. The Levitical priests did many sacrifices, the Messiah did just one himself. Levitical priests are temporary, the Messiah is permanent. So those are the contrasts that the writer establishes in his letter. One covered the sins, the other actually took the sins away, put an end of sins. And then he gets into, in chapter 10, the danger of willful sin. See, if they now apostatize from the faith and once and for all return to Judaism, there remains no more sacrifice for their sin. That's a heavy argument that's made in, in Hebrews 10. Why? Because it's a rejection of the work of the Trinity, not just the Holy Spirit, all three of them. God will judge His people. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. 
Well, having gone through all that in chapter 10, we now get to this incredible chapter, the Hall of Faith. You remember Romans chapter 8, what a high point that was? The equivalent in Hebrews is chapter 11, called the Hall of Faith, where it speaks about Abel, whose blood, you know, he gave an offering with blood, which is the only way the offering was acceptable. Then we have Enoch, who had faith through fellowship. He didn't, he had, his fellowship was so close, he didn't die. God took him. And then we had Noah, who was obedient and thus saved his family. Every one of us, our descendants, we all have a common ancestor. It's not Adam, it's Noah. <laughs> and then, of course, Abraham. He departed from his home ground, a foreigner, has a miraculous birth of Isaac, and it's his belief in the resurrection of Isaac that saves him. And his willingness to sacrifice Isaac convinced God that he was. And then, of course, we had Sarah. Um, and uh, Isaac, and all the prophecies, and Jacob. And then we have Joseph and his two sons. It goes through these great, we call it the Hall of Faith, all the way through here. And then, of course, Moses, and uh, who uh, was hidden from the laws of Pharaoh, refused to be called a son, uh, the son of uh, Pharaoh's daughter, and so forth. And they kept the first Passover, you know the story in Exodus. And we go through Joshua, and Rahab, and Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. It goes through this whole lineup. But let's just, as it gets good, we get to about verse 33, just give you a flavor of it. As he, he stops dealing with them individually, he starts dealing with them. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Who's he talking about? Daniel, you betcha. Quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. It's understood that uh, Isaiah was sawn in half by Manasseh with a wooden saw. They were tempted, they were slain by, with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, and these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise God having provided some better thing for us, that they, without us, should not be made perfect. What a climax. See, all after all that, they received not the promise, God having provided something, some better thing for us, that they, without us, should not be made complete. Or perfect in the sense of being completed. So having said that, after that big sweep of Romans 11, I mean uh, Hebrews 11, we now get to Hebrews 12. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we have five warnings in this epistle, danger of drifting, disobedience, not progressing towards maturity, willful sin, 
And then a warning against indifference. Remember I said there were three epistles that amplify Habakkuk 2.4. Habakkuk 2.4 saying the just shall live by faith. The just is defined by Romans. How shall they live? That's Galatians. By faith, the book of Hebrews. That verse is quoted as the cornerstone of all three of those epistles, so it's kind of interesting, I think. So Now we get to the epistle that's Yaakov's letter to the twelve tribes. And maybe say, what on earth are you talking about, Chuck? See, you don't know him by the name of Yaakov. The Hebrew Yaakov, which is the Greek Iacobus, English Jacob, or sometimes James. You know it as the epistle of James, but he, his name was Yaakov. He was, one of, he was a half-brother of Jesus Christ. And by the way, we know that he was married. I'll come back to that. He was an unbeliever during the lifetime of Jesus. He became a believer after the resurrection, according to 1 Corinthians 15. He was married. In 1 Corinthians 9, uh, Paul is arguing that it's okay to be married. James was, and Peter was, okay? It's interesting. There are people that try to say Jesus was married, and they just don't know their Bible. Because for a lot of reasons, that doesn't make sense. But not the least of which, if he was married, Paul would have made that argument in 1 Corinthians 9. But in any case, I won't go down that path here. That's another whole other discussion. But Yaakov, or James, was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. It's interesting, when Peter was released from prison, he instructed them to tell James. That was his main concern. James was the one that issued the verdict of the Jerusalem Council. He also gave the proclamation that authorized Gentile Christianity, so to speak. Paul reported to him when he arrived in Jerusalem. His name was used without permission by the Judaizers that is taken task in Galatians 2. He was finally executed in 62 AD, which is interesting that that is not mentioned by any of the other epistles, and it should have been, which means that they were all written before 62 AD. It's a very interesting argument for the early authorship of those letters. There's also documentation and technology that supports an even earlier dating, but let's go on here. So um, the epistle of Jacob, and it's written to the 12 tribes of the, dis, of the dispersion, which is interesting. There are not 10 lost tribes. That's a myth. There are people that build uh, castles on that house of cards. They argue that uh, the northern kingdom was taken captive by Assyria. Well, that's, they haven't read Second Chronicles 11 very carefully, but the point is, in the south you had Simeon, Benjamin, and Judah, and the Levites moved to the south when the Civil War took place. So you now got four of the twelve in the south anyway. So if there's any lost tribes, it would be eight, not ten. But that's misunderstanding the whole passage. So both Jacob and Second Peter, or First Peter, uh, address themselves to the twelve tribes. And the epistle of James focuses on conduct, not creed, behavior, not belief, deeds, not doctrine. So it's not against Paul. It's just focusing on a different approach. It's not creed, belief, or doctrine. It's conduct, behavior, and deeds. That's his emphasis. He says that the faith should be manifested by outward signs. And there's tests for the genuine faith. The response to the Word of God, response to social distinctions, production of good works, the exercise of self-control, the reaction to worldliness, the resort to prayer in all circumstances. If you have faith, that it will manifest itself in these external signs. You don't do the external signs in lieu of faith. They should be a result of your faith. And the summary of the whole epistle is in James 2. It says, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith. 
and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Think believe is a big deal? It's the devils believe. Where do they sit? But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Let's go to the first epistle of Peter. This is also written to the sojourners of the dispersion, to the Jews that are dispersed, the twelve tribes. And it focuses on the status of the believer, the fact that there was, by the foreknowledge of God, it's unto obedience of faith, that we are a living stone. And uh, this whole idea of a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. It's interesting that uh, these idioms are used throughout the Scripture with great cons uh, consistency. We call that the law of uh, expositional constancy. That's just a fancy word for saying that these idioms are used by the Holy Spirit, whether it's by Moses or in the Psalms or New Testament, you'll discover there's a, there's a consistency of idiomatic usage that is a testimony to its uh, source, if you will. Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 10, the rock that followed him in the wilderness was Christ. He's speaking idiomatically, of course. But anyway, Peter talks about the pilgrim life, that we are citizens, servants, and he speaks of marriage and all of that. And the fiery trial that's coming at the end, he deals with in, in his final farewells. One of the things about this epistle, it was written from Babylon. Now, there are many people, there's a lot of guys written books, they assume Babylon was a code name for Rome. That's nonsense. You may recall that when the Jews were released from Babylon, only 50,000 went under Ezra to rebuild uh, the temple and so forth. Most of them stayed there. They were comfortable. In Babylon was the highest concentration of Jews outside the land of Israel when the temple fell down. So it was the center of Judaism outside the land. It was appropriate for Peter, who was the apostle to the Jews, to make that his base. He wrote from there. There are a number of people that have, a, have an equity in trying to make Peter the first pope and all that. I won't go down that path. Clearly he wrote from, uh, from Babylon. The Babylonian Talmud, several centuries later, was developed there in Babylon. So uh, Peter, the apostle of the circumcision, would naturally base his there. You realize Paul was designated the, the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter was the principal apostle to the Jews. And let's get to the second letter. Uh, he emphasized the need to grow in virtue, knowledge, self-control, patience, godliness, kindness, and love. And that's, he also uses more sure word of prophecy that we dealt uh, with in uh, the earlier hour, how, more, how sure are we, and so forth. But he also focused on false teachers that will infect and slander and uh, produce immorality. And uh, God will deliver them to or from judgment. And he uses interesting examples, the fallen angels versus Noah and his family from Genesis 6, and Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and his family. These two idioms Peter will use, and they're also, I mean, use, and they're also the two idioms that Jude will use when we get to his epistle shortly. But one of the things about the second epistle of Peter, he also talks about the second coming how the belief in the second coming will be disparaged in the end times. And boy, do we see that today. It's, uh, he says uh, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? 
For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. You know how interesting it is that today so many churches fail to really focus on the second coming of Christ. And they were, you know, they, they, they seem to disparage the study of prophecy. Uh, I have found through the 50 years of study and experience that a, a focus on prophecy invariably ends up galvanizing people to take things seriously. Yes, there are abuses. Prophecy suffers from its enthusiasts as well as its detractors. However, the promise of his coming, it's our blessed hope. But Peter in this, in verse 4 here, adds something that's kind of a surprise. He links the concept of second coming with the idea that the creation continues as it always had. See, both ideas imply the, of God intervening in man's world. Many people are uncomfortable with that. So it's interesting. It's not obvious until you think it through. An interest in prophecy is linked to the interest in the creation and, and the refutation of evolution and so forth. But he goes on and says, Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. So he's talking about the end times. However, the word unto is not implied in the original Greek. The word hasting is the word that is not hastening unto, hastening the coming of the day of God. In fact, in the NIV, it says speed is coming. In the NAS, New American Standard, it says hastening the coming. In other words, looking for and hastening the coming, speeding up the coming. Really? Did you know you can speed up the coming of Jesus Christ? That's what it says. How do you do that? Well, by longing for his appearing, according to 2 Timothy 4.8, by praying for his appearing, Revelation 22.8, and by seeking to win souls, in Romans 11.25. That's our mission. That's our job. As we survey the landscape of the coming year and realize it's likely to be a very turbulent year, let's remember that God is still in control, his church is still precious, and we have still have the same mission, and... Uh, we should keep at it. We should keep at it, because victory is assured to us. That's really what it's all about. Well, then we get to the first epistle of John. It's called his first epistle. There are many scholars think it's more a set of sermon notes than an actual letter, although it was a letter, of course. And John, very typically, is full of sevens, seven contrasts, truth versus error, light versus darkness, Father versus the world, Christ versus the Antichrist, good works versus evil works, the Holy Spirit versus error, love versus pious pretense, God born versus others. So this is John, whether it's his, whether it's his gospel or whether it's his letters or whether it's the book of Revelation, he's a, you always see the heptatic structure, the sevenfold structure. There are seven tests of profession, desire, doctrine, conduct, discernment, motive, and new birth in the first epistle of John. It has uh, seven traits of being born again. It has seven reasons why this epistle was written. It has seven tests of the Christian genuineness, seven tests of honesty and reality. There are also six liars embraced in that, interestingly enough, one less than seven. And uh, so the structure is there. Whether it's the Holy Spirit or John style, I'll leave it up to you to sort that through. There's sevens everywhere. The spiritual fundamentals, they're all-inclusive commandments. We believe on Jesus Christ, and that's why we love one another. That's John's emphasis. That's the ultimate test of your maturity in Christ is do you love one another. 
You should have a profession for others. The Father sacrificing the Son was love's last word. The perfect love casteth out fear and so forth. Well, it's, it's a great letter. It's really the letter you want to study carefully, but I'll leave that to you. Let's go to a second letter, which is widely, in my opinion, misunderstood. I'm going to share some things with you that I cannot find anybody that agrees with me. Second Epistle of John was written to someone called the elect lady, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but, also, but all they that have known the truth, for the truth's sake which dwelleth in us, and shall be with us forever. And he goes on. The question is, who is the elect lady? If you search the libraries, whether it's back to Jerome in the past, or as recently as, say, J. Vernon McGee or some of the current writers, they all will say, all of them, I've checked, say essentially the same thing. This is either an idiom, the elect lady represents the church, it's an idiom for the church, as commonly taught, or it's some prominent person in the church of Ephesus that we'll never know who it is. And that's what Jerome thought. Now, Jerome was from the medieval church, the predecessor of the Catholic situation. So for him to consider this an idiom of the church may be comfortable for him, but not for us. We are not children of the church. Unto the elect lady and her children. We're not children of the church. I don't buy that. That's not inconsistent with the rest of Scripture. The alternative is that it's some prominent person we can never know. Well, when I read the first verse... It tells me who she is, and I'm astonished that nobody else seems to see that. So I'm warning, I'm going to tell, I'm going to show, what I'm about to show you, I want to be candid with you. I can't, I have so far not found any of the classical commentators that agree with me. But I have found people when I show this to them that agree with me when I show them. Look what it says. The elder, that's John, of course, unto the elect lady, who is the most elect person on the planet earth. Huh? Who? Mary, absolutely. The dream of every woman, every Jewish woman, was to be the mother of the Messiah. She's the most elect lady on the planet earth. Unto the elect lady and her children. Did she have children? Absolutely. And by the way, the last verse of this letter will say, the sister of your, the, the children of your sister greet you. Did she have a sister? Yes, her sister was with her at the foot of the cross, according to John 19. We'll come to that in a minute. The el read, just read the first sentence. The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, but not I only, but also all they that have known the truth. You realize what that's saying? Everybody that has known the truth loves her. How could they? They don't know her. But if she's Mary, everybody would feel they do. Now, you follow me what I'm saying? And he's using the truth here, by the way. It'll become clear as you read the next few verses. He's using the truth as the title of Jesus Christ, by the way. But you don't have to hang on that. The elder and the elect lady are children, whom I love in the truth. And not I only, but all they that have known the truth love her. So that, that transcends centuries. That transcends the geography. For the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us, see, that's Christ, and shall be with us forever. Amen. The elect lady. All they that have known the truth have known her. In fact, love her. The Roman Catholic Church has gone so far the other way to, to deify her. 
And as Protestants, we tend to go the other way. We tend to ignore her completely. The truth is obviously somewhere in between. Obviously, she's elect. If I understand this correctly, this letter gives us a lot of insights. Who is the most elect lady and woman with Mary? To whom did Jesus consign the care of his mother? John. It's amazing. He didn't consign her to his other son. To, she had other sons. James and Jude and, and others. There were, you know, there were apparently uh, four guys and uh, several sisters. They did, he didn't, Jesus did not consign Mary to any of his half-brothers. She consigned him to the Apostle John. Interesting. That which we had from the beginning, he says. So the people who, you know, had loved her, loved her from the beginning. And she did have a sister, according to John 19.25. Now, if this is true, let's notice some things. Mary was frustrated with Jesus when he was 12 years old. Remember, she kept those things in her heart. Remember, Jesus gave a sort of a dismissive allusion at Cana. Woman, what do I have to do with you? There's a, that was her last recorded words, by the way, was there. In Mark, she thought Jesus needed care. And, of course, consigned to John. By the way, John also had a pushy mother, <laughs> according to Matthew 20, incidentally. So Mary, too, also needed the Holy Spirit, according to Acts 1. So here's a woman that we may venerate very highly because the mother of Jesus Christ, but she needed encouragement and she needed exhortation. Both. And that's both in this letter. This alters the tone of the whole epistle because it's written to Mary, not just to any of us. There's a divine insistence on love and a human expression of love, but also a watch against error. There's a warning against false teaching. We are told by Paul to open our homes to hospitality as a way of preaching the gospel. She's told not to. Why? Because if she brings a false teacher under her roof, she's authorizing that teaching. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Missler. For a complete listing of resources available, please contact the station or go to khouse.org. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Until next time, may God richly bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. 